Welcome to the Second Renaissance Podcast, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. I'm Anders Sumanilson, global futurist, author, and the co-creator of the Adobe CQ, the IQ test for your creative leadership, and your host for the Second Renaissance. So I'm sort of privileged here today because um, Katrina Wallace or Dr. Katrina Wallace who's here with me in the studio today. Um, we just, you know, you start just chit-chatting straight off the bat about consciousness. And certainly as, um, as an expert on artificial intelligence, there's always this question on, you know, will, will machines at one stage be sentient? Um, welcome to the show with those big sort of yeah. Opening words. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a brilliant episode. Um, thank you for hanging out with us here today. Yeah, such a pleasure. I'm really very much looking forward to any discussion around the future of humanity and artificial intelligence. I'll be right in the middle of that. Yeah, cool. So um, for those of you who haven't met um, Katrina Wallace before, uh, I just described her as she's sort of like Byron Bay meets Silicon Valley. Uh, it is consciousness and um, you know, the future of sentient uh, machines and bots combined, but also very importantly, the, the sort of role of ethics. But maybe before we go to that space, and, you know, we'll do a little bit of sort of reintroductions throughout throughout the uh, second Renaissance episode here today. Um, firstly, how would you define consciousness and its relationship to technology, bots, AI? Yeah, well, obviously, it's a very big question, um, how do you define consciousness? But if we think of it in the simple way of being aware, if something is aware of itself within its environment, that is, is a type of consciousness. And so artificial intelligence is advancing so quickly, and particularly machine learning and, the, and machines that actually can learn by repeating tasks, uh, can certainly... And we expect, or the big AI thinkers expect, that these machines will have a type of consciousness. Now, my interest is what happens when the machines are aware of themselves, their their setting, uh, and and don't need their human masters. And and that time is probably 10 years away. It's not 20 years away. And I know we used to talk about the time of singularity being around 2030 to 2040, where the robots no longer needed their human masters and could control things themselves. So this is Ray Kurzweil and others, Werner Winger's concept of right. transhumanism and singularity. Yeah. Right. Thought it's probably 20, 25 years away. But the existence of non-biological brains, of course, uh, Elon Musk released his first version of that last year called the Neural Link. We're going rapidly with AI being the fastest growing tech sector in, in the world at the moment. So I believe within 10 to 20 years there will be these um, conscious robots and whether that's software or hardware. And the question is then what, what are we doing with them? Who's controlling them or regulating them? But also what does this mean for humanity and our evolution physically? These machines will be um, and software will be embedded in our bodies. But also I'm very interested spiritually and energetically, what does this mean? Are we in a great new phase of transhumanism where we actually evolve into something else? So who's got consciousness at the moment? 
I have consciousness, you have consciousness because we are, we're aware that we are humans on this planet. We're aware of emotions. Would other animals or other beings be, be sentient or is it something we have a monopoly on? So this is a great question and to my Byron Bay side of your introduction, uh, I've done a lot of work over well, really the last 30 years on working with Native American and Indigenous Australians on really understanding their view on spirit, consciousness, etc. So if we look to some of our Indigenous people, they would feel that spirit and consciousness was not just in animate objects but was in everything. And if we really look at even the great thinkers like Sam Harris, um, uh, Michael Singer at the moment who talk about mindfulness and consciousness, it is and possibly to be in, in everything. So I think it is arrogant for humans to think that we're the only privileged beings with consciousness. I suspect there's probably types of consciousness that we don't yet know about that is prolific on this on this planet and in, in this cosmos. Yeah. I mean, it was, I remember reading a, a book on um, ketosis and the keto diet, where, which of course does have some um, non-plant-based proteins in the book, uh, as well as just promoting, you know, quite a high but healthy fat diet, for example. And then they, they labeled a little bit of a criticism at um, vegans and veganism for, for daring to say that plants don't have a consciousness or aren't in some ways, shape or form, sentient like these beautiful native flowers, for example. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, so the sentience and consciousness might be, might be all around us, but I guess part of the problematic might be when, you know, when we choose to invest in, you know, Neuralink or uh, if we have other types of, you know, super intelligent cochlear implants or something like this? Is that when it gets starts getting a bit tricky or what, what kind of ethical questions arise? Yeah. So, so if, we, if we follow that path and just the, the history of, of software and machines, hardware as well, once upon a time we, they were down the road in a big office in a, a mainframe, then they were within the building, then they were next to us, then they were on our desk tops and they're in our devices and, and the next thing will be that they'll be in our bodies, um, as we've just talked about. Now, the ethics and rules and laws and regulations around um, technology in general are there, but specifically related to artificial intelligence, there's very, very little laws or regulations to govern how this technology is used particularly now when we know it's going to be used within our bodies. So this is, and quite rightfully so, very alarming. And why is this the case? So we're a government. The government are working very hard to put in place guidelines and some regulation around artificial intelligence, but at the moment they are just guidelines. So I worked very closely with Minister Karen Andrews uh, over the last couple of years and her team putting together Australia's ethical AI guidelines and there are there are eight principles there that if you're interested at some stage today we can we can chat through um ed santo the human rights commissioner fabulous guy right on this and he's very interested and has written uh, his department written a number of white papers on 
human rights and AI-based decision-making. Again, they're white papers, they're, they are suggestions, but there's no laws or regulations yet because the technology moves so quickly, it's very hard for government to, to catch up. And the, and the good thing is that universally or globally, the principles around ethical, responsible technology and AI are, are all pretty much the same. So, so there will be some universal agreement, but no universal regulations. So question comes in, could it be the tech giants who are producing a lot of this AI that are the leaders? Well, we know that they're not, right? We know that we're not. Today in Australia, the huge um, news about uh, Google agreeing to some of the government's requirements about them paying for uh, news feeds, but Facebook refusing and mm. cutting off all the, the news, news feeds into Facebook's sites for, or feeds for Australians. So the tech giants are just beyond the control of government and are really a power unto themselves. And when we look at their business models, their business models don't lean towards them being profitable and efficient by being ethical. It's, it does not go hand in hand. So we know some companies like Google trying to make inroads there by training their staff in ethical AI and having ethical principles, et cetera, but we still know that the powerful business models that they have don't support responsible or, or ethical tech. Mm. And and I guess, you know, an, an area where this is pretty um, apparent, uh, you mentioned you know, Sam Harris a, a moment ago and, and certainly, you know, big shout out and, 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 and cap nod to, to Sam Harris's fabulous podcast that you should all listen to uh, called Making Sense. He he speaks about the tech giants and and some of the you know ethical shortcomings being around say you know privacy protection and the amount of CSAM or child sexual abuse material for example that's being exchanged on some of the social networks um, and in some ways being protected by these neutral tech platforms for example. Which clearly have some kind of you know commercial interest in you know keeping an engaged community. Uh, so you know that's one example of where ethics obviously and and, and there needs to be regulation and, and and further oversight to you know stop these kind of horrendous practices, right? Um, but what I'm hearing from you in terms of you know transhumanism and and the integration of, of technologies in our, in our bodies is potentially around things like data sharing or, you know, when, this, you know, when the hardware needs to be upgraded or, you know, um, firmware, software updates um, or how it evolves in, 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 in step with, with humans. What are, the sort of, what are the concerns that you're seeing, you know, 10 years down the track or is it the, the types of people who, in their own image, design the AI? What, what, are, what are the sort of big, big ethical questions there? Yeah, well, very interesting, the second part of what you said. Um, is the AI designed to be a reflection of the programmers or the coders? And I certainly believe it is. And I demonstrated this. I have, you already know, Anders, that I um, built with one of my engineers a robot called Trinity because. When, when I was doing a lot of public speaking, I thought, well, why, why do I have to do the talk and I can build a robot that does my talk for me? So 
we spun up very, very quickly and very cheaply, $10,000 all we spent to make a robot that could replace me. Um, and when I was designing the robot and training the robot, I recognised the robot then had my personality. So the robot was trained to be kind and actually did, did a feature on in the Stay Kind movement, our Trinity featured there. Um, and then I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. This robot is like an extension of me. And then it occurred to me, holy shit, what if I was just like dark and evil? What if I wanted to use this machine to manipulate or for personal gain or to, to do anything criminal? Very simple to do. And, it, and the robots are extensions of their makers. Uh, and then depending on what network they're plugged into and what they're learning, they can learn very quickly to be even better at being good or even better at being bad. And so it was quite, and I didn't really get that until I, I built this robot that was an extension of me. And, and that is the way. And, and one of the challenges we have at the moment in the artificial intelligence machine learning sector, nine in 10 jobs are held by young male, one in 10 by women, and even fewer women in, in leadership roles. So already we see some of the bias creeping in not just to the data, and that's a whole other conversation, but into the coders who are coding these machines that will run our world. And so the train's kind of already left the station on that because, you know, AI has been built for really, AI has been around for 70 years, but prolifically in the last 10 years, and we're really in a bad place already. Mm. And so so we're in a bad place. Is you know, is the solution more, you know, more female graduates or like what, what can you, what can we do? Or, you know, if, if the, you know, if the trains left the station, the horses already bolted, um, how do we, you know, has, has it in some ways, you know, has the AI already broken out of the box or, you know, what can we do to either contain those biases or make people aware of it? so that we can hopefully mould it in some ways or is, or is it just a foregone conclusion? Well, well let's explore exactly what, when I say, you know, kind of it's, it's already difficult, already bad, what, what that means. So one of the great challenges is we think about what artificial intelligence is and in its simplest form it's uh, software that mimics human intelligence. There's four or five key stages of it. So there's one, it's the data that is gathered and used to train the algorithms. Then it is the analytics and decision-making, and then it's the automation. The data, algorithms, analytics, decision-making, automation, that's kind of AI. And anywhere on those uh, four um, areas can there be corruption and, and bias built in. So if we look at the initial bit, the, the data, and where we're really challenged here is because organisations use historical data sets to train the algorithms that are going to determine what their AI does. And so we'll give you an example of this. So very prolific last year was Apple's partnership with Goldman Sachs and Apple released the AI-based Apple Card, which is a credit, mm -hmm. credit facility, went out and asked um, through social media channels and in an automated way asked customers to provide their financial details. So women can't provide them, men provide them, and often men and women who are husband and wife, including Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, 
provided exactly the same financial details to Goldman Sachs and the Apple card. Anyway, what happened was, on average, I think Steve Wozniak got 10 times the credit limit of his wife, and there's another great uh, famous developer uh, who's, who got 20 times the same credit, uh, 20 times credit with the same financial details as his wife, that the whole thing blew up and was a disaster. So this is because the data set that was used to train the algorithms was historical and didn't have good data about women. There was probably women mm-hmm. missing from it, um, et cetera. Similar when Amazon put, uh, were training a recruitment AI to recruit uh, people into Amazon, the AI determined that if anyone on their resume mentioned the word woman, that they would be excluded. And, and it was only predominantly males that were recommended into, into Amazon and they had to cut that off very quickly. So, so therein the bias is in the data and the bias exists because historically we've had a biased society and when we've gone to collect data, women are often missing. Mm. So you go and search for something and I've heard you speak about this, you know, great CEO and yeah. who's going to turn up and search results. Right, yeah, exactly. To this day, even mm. basic things now and searches that we'll be doing or our kids at school will be doing already train on historical data, really have just, we've just hard-coded all of the biases and the challenges that we've had to date into the machines that are running our world. And so we're, this is where the trains left the station, like, okay, that's already gone and done. Um, I had a senior executive from a life insurance company ring me the other day to say, we're really nervous. We've got this data set. We think it doesn't have much data about women in it, but we're going to use it to determine who gets life insurance or not. We don't know what to do. Where is the line that we need to go up to to know that we're safe and this is not biased? Mm. And these are experienced executives running massive companies who don't know. So I'm curious there, I was running a, a series on, on LinkedIn Live for, for Adobe mm. uh, called Adobe CQ. We co-created something called the Adobe CQ or Creative uh, Quotient. Uh, it's like an IQ test for your creative leadership in some ways. And, and um, I was interviewing leaders from, from, from around the world on, on great customer experiences. And I interviewed a, um, uh, an executive from uh, Tata, Click, which is one of the online e-commerce platforms in, in India. And he was saying that when it ca- came to data collection to then drive better customer experience, he said in, in Click's experience, there was data that was pre-COVID and data that's post-COVID. And so they've time-stamped all their data to say that the customer behavior data that they were gathering is so fundamentally different from you know, February 2020 onwards that they've sort of discarded the old data. I mean, super simplistic question, but, you know, is mm. could there be a, you know, a timestamp, you know, pre and post George Floyd, for example, or like how, how do you see this playing out in terms of, you know, discrimination, ethics, and, you know, next time, you know, our kids, um, you know, Google, great entrepreneur, great CEO, mm. it's not just, pale male style that mm-hmm. comes up, but rather, you know, you know, a nowist and a futurist yeah. reflection of, of what they can aspire to be, for example. 
Yeah, well, that, that's just a stunning example of a company that's very switched on to recognise that COVID has really changed so many consumers' behaviours. And if they're still trying to trade and and use AI or analytics based on pre-COVID, then it's just not going to hit the mark. So yeah. it's, it's fascinating to hear that. Fascinating. And it's also logical, right? Mm. <laughs> it's not rocket science yeah. that you do that. But I wonder how many companies are doing that. And I would suspect not that many mm. because they don't have the awareness, even at senior executive level, about this whole notion of ethical technology and ethical infrastructure. So we're in the process of writing some board executive training courses just an hour long for boards to actually understand what is responsible infrastructure, what is responsible tech, and what is ethical infrastructure and tech. Because my experience is the higher up I go in an organisation, the less people know about artificial intelligence and its and data and its effects. Yeah. So one of the things that's wonderful about you is that you know you're not just a you're not just a thinker and a philosopher. Although we we, we invite those, <laughs> uh, you're, you're that and but you're also a real practitioner. You know what's sort of going on under the hood, and you you've just mm. sold Flamingo AI, which is an mm. ASX listed company. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Flamingo AI do, and um, um, you know what? What are the types of um, you know ethical considerations that you think companies should be thinking about in this sort of you know in this area where I guess sustainability, corporate social responsibility, um, are really on the forefront of of companies trying to accelerate out of the curve. Mm. So uh, Flamingo AI, so we were one of Australia's first young AI companies and what we did is we actually built our own machine learning product. So we call it semi-supervised machine learning, which sits somewhere between supervised and unsupervised machine learning. And we built the business here and then because the AI sector was very small here and there was virtually no investment in it um, four or five years ago when when we started it, we took the business to America and and ran it out of um, the US before bringing it back and and listing here. And and look, being a young AI company based in America on the Australian Stock Exchange is a very very difficult journey. But what we built was um, sort of a non-biological brain. So we built a... A subject matter expert um, robot, a software robot that companies such as HSBC use. And these companies would use this to augment or potentially replace their human subject matter experts who were manually asking or answering questions. Uh, it replaced you know, procedure manuals or, or SharePoint data sets uh, as a very simple way that employees instead of asking a human a question, could ask the robot a question. And so what uh, the Flamingo product called the Smart Hub does is it actually is, is trained, say, in, in 40 banking products. It then knows the answers t- to most of the questions. If it's not able to answer the question, it knows to go out to subject matter experts who are human, find the answer, bring it back, take it through an approval process and give it to the employee. So it's just like what a human does, but super fast, never forgets anything, uh, works 24 by 7, never gets sick. And we didn't, we never encourage our machines to be replacing humans. 
but to augment them. So there would be a human subject matter expert that worked with this machine as its as its buddy, essentially as, a, as its team member. And so we call that digital labor. It was a digital um, employee. So uh, and so it was my work doing you know selling and, and developing this product in Australia and the US, which is where I saw that there was an absence of really understanding from executives around responsible and ethical tech. Um, and I now sit as the chair, executive chair for um, Artesian Capital's BOAB AI, which is a, a venture capital fund funding Australian-based AI companies. And again, I see in these young companies just an absence of understanding uh, around ethics um, in the tech. So we've also partnered with a fabulous group called the Gradient Institute, who are a group of super nerdy um, data scientists who do all of the work in how do you ethically code something? How do you ethically engineer something? And then my firm, Ethical AI Advisory, does, does more of the organizational behavioral context around it. But what we know is there are eight core principles. And when we go through these, you can see they're perfectly common sense. And also some organizations will be doing this, some won't be. So what they are is, um, one, that AI must be developed with the benefit of human society and the environment in mind must not com come at a cost. Okay. Sounds like this sounds like a build on Isaac Asimov's. Yeah, could could well be. Let's, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, have like, a look at that. I'm sure it's more more, yeah, more nuanced right, than yeah. that. Really, yeah, yeah. shouldn't do harm. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting in the early drafts of the the ethical principles, we used to differentiate between citizen AI and non-citizen AI. Uh, but we've stopped that now because really what that meant is military, you know, were there different laws for military, mm -hmm. which is a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, so one, it should benefit and not harm human society environment. Uh, two, it must be built with human-centred values at its core. Number three, it must be fair so it cannot discriminate. Four, it must adhere to privacy and security laws and rules. Five, it must be reliable and safe. Uh, six, and this, these are six, seven, eight are kind of the cool ones. So six, it must be contestable. So let's go back to the Apple card example mm -hmm. and let's, let's be Mrs. Wozniak. So Mrs. Wozniak's got 10 times less credit than her husband. And so she goes to the bank to go, hey, not fair, like your AI made a, dis a discriminatory decision against me. Now, if that bank was adhering to ethical principles, she has a right to contest the decision the AI made. And so they would have to have a, a, a contestability process. Mm -hmm. Then into the seventh principle, it, they must be transparent and be able to explain what the algorithm did. So the seventh principle is transparency and explainability. Now, and I know you, Anders, know quite a bit about tech. Being transparent in tech, opening a tech box up and having anyone mm. look into an algorithm that's really popular, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, how do you make it transparent mm. and how do you explain it? And most AI is what we call black box AI, like not even the developers or the coders can understand it. So white box AI is really what we're trying to develop mm. now. So um, the, the bank would have to open everything up, show Mrs. Wozniak how the algorithms work to give her 10 times less credit. That's going to be hugely difficult. And then the eighth principle is accountability. So the bank plus the vendor need to be accountable for the AI that has made 
the erroneous or discriminatory unfair decision. Now, most business listeners to us now will be starting to sweat because imagine that on scale. Imagine your AI has gone out and made a discriminatory decision and all of those customers can come and go, right, contestability, transparency, explainability and accountability, that is very difficult. Now, these are guiding principles. They're not yet legislation, but they're certainly on their way to go there. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. I'm just thinking, even thinking about is it rule number three or guideline number three, which I think it was human-centered values yeah. or was that number, number two? two? Mm-hmm. Number two. So human-centered values. I mean, we're living in a world where, you know, we're still talking about, you know, human rights and and and, and certainly, you know, sometimes, you know, universal, you know, basic human rights are being contested around the world depending on which, you know, country and still got a long way to go there. How do we, you know, if we don't even agree as humans on these things, how can we code ethically for AI? Do you see? It's a big question. And also when we're talking about human-centered values, how does that go across cultures? Are the same values in Australia equal to those in the US, to those in India or, or anywhere else? Mm. So how, how do we even determine what those human values are? Because I'm not sure there is really a universal set of or global set of human values that's ever been agreed Mm. on, right? So these questions are still being teased out, Mm. still being debated all over the world, and there's no clear answer to them yet. Yeah, because the, you know, the sort of ethical dilemma that often gets thrown around these, you know, principles or these scenarios is the idea of, of the trolley. Uh, right, yes. and mm-hmm. and you having to be the you know agent who chooses you know if you're in a mine shaft, and you know this trolley spins out of control, you know which path should it go mm-hmm. down depending on what type of personality or what you know age or if it's a kid or if it's a you know convicted yeah. criminal etc cetera, etc, cetera, you know are down uh, downstream so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, I'm not sure anyone has solved for that trolley problem. Feel free to enlighten no. me, but yeah. No, they haven't. And the trolley problem is typically played out with the coming of the autonomous vehicle. So mm. who is responsible if the autonomous vehicle, which they have done, hit and killed people, um, who, is, who has agency, who is responsible for that? Is it the designer of the algorithm? Is it the owner of the autonomous car? Is it who? And that's still not really been determined. Mm. Um, But unfortunately, the way of progress is it will probably be some bad things happen, there'll be more accidents, and then lawmakers are forced to really look at this in in detail. But the trolley problem is um, big on the minds of AI developers and there is now, particularly the work that Gradient is doing, some very good um, processes for how they start to do the ethical coding and ethical engineering. And and look, it's everything from being as simple as having a checklist of things that they need to check to then what features they build into the product. Um, but these are, these are great. You know, they're philosophical, but they're extremely 3D human problems that we yeah. need to solve really quickly. Which lane would you send the trolley down? <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to answer that, but uh, so um, I mean, just, just to sort of you know to 
I love the levels of abstraction here, but just, you know, for, for maybe the, the, you know, for the technophobes uh, who are, who are listening today or, or watching this, um, you know, what, what are some, what are some areas in our everyday lives, health, smart home, car, where AI is, is making a, a profound and positive difference and people may not even be aware of it? Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, very interesting. So I'm working with two um, professors at University of New South Wales writing a book on um, called Survive AI. So what we're doing is we're mapping out all of the touch points for an average human, so we'll, we'll have four personas, and then mapping on the, all the benefits and then all the potential harms that come with it. And then we'll qualify that and quantify that. And we're in the process of putting that all all together now. So we've been um, thinking long and hard about this. So just off the top of my head, we have 18 categories of how AI interacts with a human on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So that's across um, uh, transport, uh, banking, employment, music, entertainment, government, military, the environment, and, and on and on it goes. And so it's pretty much across everything that we're doing now. Uh, mostly we will not know that it's AI, but Gartner predicts within the next two years that 80% of all technology will have a foundational component that is machine learning or artificially intelligence driven. So often what we use is already an AI product, particularly most people don't realise um, they do now since the social dilemma film came out, but that social media is completely AI machine learning driven. Um, doesn't really need many of its human masters to be telling it how to do things and what to serve up and what to feed and what to sell you. Um, it, it's quite extraordinary. But where we can benefit from, from it, I think predominantly will be in, well, there's actually only two or three real things AI does as benefit. One, it makes things far more efficient because it can automate things, and two, it's very fast and effective analytics and decision-making. So, so their um, efficiency, the productivity, decision-making and analytics, that's really why we do AI. That's what makes it good and big and powerful. But what we say there is AI will make things bigger, faster, cheaper, and it'll break things bigger, faster, cheaper. Yeah, But where I see the real benefits that I get very, very excited about, and I, I've just um, gone on to the advisory board for Forbes and they have a um, not-for-profit arm, a social venture arm called Forbes Ignite. Um, so I sit on Forbes Ignite advisory board and they are putting together a group of 30 AI women around the world and that sounds like they're robots, um, women in AI. <laughs> And they're solving big uh, healthcare problems. So healthcare is where AI will really come into its own, and that will be in diagnostics, that will be in robotic operations, so the surgeon is not required, um, disease prote- uh, prevention, detection. We'll see the whole healthcare system and world change because of the beautiful things that AI will do. Yeah, because I got a I got a nudge every six months. I go in for for a for a skin check with a with a dermatologist to to check for skin cancers because mm. I've had some cut out. And a few years ago, it was all just you know manual labour. 
you know, yeah. hoping hoping that my dermatologist had um, you know had his you know annual checkup to see how <laughs> how good his eyes or yeah. um, the uh, little microscope there um, was. Um, and of course, they've now migrated to a world where uh, through image recognition. Um, they now take you know digital photography yeah. of anything that they you know might be monitoring, um, and so it's a it's a new experience. And in fact, you know I think the 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 research also bears out from I think it's the University of Heidelberg. Um, we'll have to do a source check on this one where they've shown that you know the AI is in fact more accurate when it comes to diagnosis. Yes. Oh, absolutely, and that's I think they're showing that um, in anything to do with skin dermatology over and over again i had a conversation yesterday with friends of mine uh, don and michelle perugini who run a company called presogen which is an australian company um, now operating globally they do ai-based um, embryo selection in ivf and then wow. their next product is related to actually determining whether there's any genetic defect in the embryo that's been selected so extraordinary. Mm. I mean, extraordinary. And this is all really live and happening, or yes, ex correct. yeah, mm. okay, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. And that's what most people don't realize. They still think, oh, this is kind of in the future, but it's here now, or it's in the laboratories, about mm. to be, you know, popped out of the laboratories. So some e extraordinary things in healthcare will be coming soon. So there, I'm thinking, I I, I meet religious people in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in my family and extended community. Um, I'm an atheist, um, but they would say, you're starting to play God here. What, 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 what do you say? Is AI potentially a new type of God-like, omniscient mm. being, or what would you say to those, those kind of critiques? Yeah, well, it depends on your religious um, lens. Or, or spiritual dogma. So my view is that if we if we consider that, um, that let's take the view that we won't use a particular religion or a particular god, but spirit um, is creates everything in our world or our universe. Then spirit has created technology as well. Mm -hmm. um, and further to my talk about consciousness, it's can spirit be an inanimate object? Um, well, certainly Indigenous um, peoples, uh, certain Indigenous tribes believe that. Um, do I think that um, there can be spirit or God in technology? I don't know. The word God is too kind of mm. laden. But it's, it's a field of inquiry I'm interested in, plus quite a few of the um, theologists who are in technology and uh, philosophers, that is the question we would like to ask is can um, technology act as God or can God be within technology? Mm. Sounds ludicrous at this point in time, so I'm just going to put you know, big caveats on that, but it is a field worthy of exploration because the technology doesn't even need to play God, but the technology can most definitely control humans. That's for sure. Mm. Um, and that's why we need to just make sure that there are ethical leaders in place now who can start to be monitoring the tech, the build of the technology so we don't get into a position where that's the case. Yeah. 
and the other the other thing here too, of course, is yeah, the, the likes of Yuval Harari or uh, my Swedish compatriot Nick Bostrom. Um, you know, they would both philosophize about you know either you know breakout AI or even some of the challenges we might give to AI to solve. So I think Yuval Harari gives the example that you know if we said, hey, we've got this climate crisis, please solve for that uh, Mr. or Mrs. or Hen, as we have in Sweden, a third sex, um, please solve this you know, environmental problem. And then the first thing the AI would do would be to kill off all humans as, <laughs> as, the, biggest, as, the, as the biggest polluters. Um, and, um, you know, what, 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 how, you know, how do we code for that or how, you know, on what level of, of government or on, you know, sort of a meta level, do, do we as humans need to think about that or, or collaborate mm. on that? Mm. Well, my call for action whenever I do a, a talk on on this to audiences is that I don't think we can rely on the tech giants. Um, we've talked a little bit about that, but I, I love in the Social Dilemma film that was out recently where they said, look, of the five tech giants, there are 50 designers who are controlling the attention of two to three billion people every day. So, yeah, we yeah. We, we cannot rely on the tech giants. Um, government will try and do their best, but they're always behind. And as soon as they catch up, we, the entrepreneurs, will just invent the next more difficult thing to control. So I don't think we can rely on government, although government has a very, very important role to play. Can we rely on boards and executive teams? I hope so, and I'll do everything I can to help educate them so they know. But where I see it's really switched on is in the engineers and the designers and, and the, the general employee base. So I did a talk for Atlassian actually on this topic, and I had the most beautiful response. It was like 2,000 of their team members. They were so passionate, and, and my call to action for them was, Okay, so I'm not sure, you know, they have great leaders, of course, but um, in general terms, it won't necessarily be the formal leaders. We need the informal leaders. We need all of you to step up to be ethical leaders, to call out when you see there's bias, to, to be able to take those eight principles and use them in your daily um, work if you're coding or designing or even if you're not, even if you're in the marketing department, to make sure that the engineering department is held to account. So what I'm calling for and I would love to see is just a huge movement of, oh, it's almost going to say young people. It doesn't have to be young people. But I know young people are really plugged into this, right? This is very important to them mm -hmm. about ethics and being purpose-led in, in, their, in their work. So my call out is for all employees to learn about these ethical principles, super easy to access, and to start being ethical leaders themselves and to hold their own teams accountable for responsible ethical technology. So having, you know, these guidelines, you know, beyond just sort of the, the, the taglines, I guess, of, you know, Google's do no evil, for example, but actually, you know, as as you're coding, having those eight principles next to your, right, right. To your dashboard. For Absolutely. Example. But we saw, you know, an example of Google had one of their um, key researchers on, on ethics uh, produced a paper and published it without 
Google's full permission and, and she was ousted out of the company. Mm. So we even know the people who were in there fighting, it still can be quite political. Mm. But en masse with a whole group of people, not just say one person in the ethics department, if everybody steps up and steps into this, then we can definitely make a change. And it's the actually only way that it's going to change because mm. it's going too far. So the social dilemma has certainly, you know, raised this point fairly profoundly around ethics and, and you know, our, I think, you know, our addiction to certain technologies and, and Tristan Harris has been a, you know, great contributor to that mm. dialogue. You know, and we've thrown a lot of names around in, in this episode of the Second Renaissance. I'm, I'm curious, for those who want to learn a little bit more about this, what, what are the you know, non-for-profits, the associations, you know, the, the thought leaders that, you know, be you a big business or a small business or, you know, another type of organization or uh, entrepreneur, what, you know, who should we be subscribing to? Who's, who's, yeah. who's breaking ground beyond yourself in this area? Yeah, so there are, there are lots of great um, resources. So Tristan Harris is the Centre for Humane um, Technology slash mm-hmm. Society. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're great. Google it and you'll find Google it. Google that, you'll find <laughs> it. Um, also, I sit on a board of a not-for-profit called Reset Australia. And so our work is all around um, helping consumers and citizens understand uh, some of the challenges around, particularly around social media and AI. So if they, if the audience like to look at Reset, um, probably .org.au or something, but Reset Australia, they'll find it. And that's been funded actually um, by a not-for-profit called Luminate out of the US who is funding these reset in all different countries. I sit on the board of the Australian one. Um, And they're doing fabulous work in just bringing this to the fore for for politicians and for uh, citizens. And then it's pretty easy to find a lot of information. Um, The World Economic Forum has a fantastic whole um, do-it-yourself ethical AI toolkit and videos and frameworks that you can just use for free. Like it's staggeringly good. Okay. I'm fascinated in this, in, you know, in, in what might sound quite, you know, philosophical to, 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 to some people in, in, in a really good way. Um, you know, what's your, what's your passion or... or, or purpose in in all of this on this quest Mm. well definitely for me it it is a passion and it is purpose it is absolutely my life purpose there's no question because each time I try to kind of jump off I get pulled back on it and I think that is to try and lead through this as a female leader but also someone who's built the technology who now invests in it who has relationship with government. So, so I come as an all-round kind of, you know, I've kind of earned the right to ha- have a say, I think. And uh, my role, I hope, is to just wake people up to the fact that this will go badly if we're not stepping into it and taking responsibility and really learning to do ethical infrastructure and ethical tech. It's no longer just a nice thing to have like a sustainability or, or a corporate responsibility. We have to do this ethically or it will go badly. And if it doesn't go badly for us, our children will be the ones who are actually already suffering um, through social media in particular. Um, it will be the children, not only you inherit, 
the climate change disaster that the world is, but a technology-led disaster. And and again, the, the we're really thinking about what could wipe humanity out. Well, certainly the climate, um, certainly nuclear war. But the next thing is technology. And uh, my friend Dave Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace. So Dave and I went on a on a impact investment trip to Bhutan and spent a lot of time talking about the environment, talking about tech. And at the end of it, Dave said to me, oh, I'm more worried about your killer robots now than I am worried about you know some of the biodiversity um, challenges we've got. And I said, quite right, you should be. And so we're now seeing other people in other sectors, such as Dave in, in the environmental sector, going, uh, this technology, we need to understand it because it has the power to destroy humanity well before the environment does. Mm. You're a mother of five. Mm-hmm. What, what and and obviously you're you're concerned about the next generation. What what sort of future career or, or humanist or uh, you know where to live kind of advice yeah. when they ask for it? Do you do you provide? Yeah. So I yes have um, five beautiful kids, two stepsons, three of my own, four boys, one girl, uh, and they're all on their own path, but my advice to them really is to be a, to become tech savvy, just to become digitally literate. And, and the great thing is that these young people already are, they're born that way, but it needs to be a bit more than that because technology, regardless of what field, and one is in electronics, one is a farmer, one is um, running a not-for-profit, doing um, redefining masculinity, one is doing med science and one is doing mechanics. All of them will be heavily technology-oriented within the next five years. And so whatever way we go um, for our, our the young people, they will end up there. So why not learn it now? Mm. Why not just get across and start to and, – and I regret I, I'm not a coder. I just – I so regret that I am not and it's probably something that I'll learn to do because you don't really understand it until you code it. I mean, I can architect and design it and talk about it and, and build it and build companies, but actually code uh, an AI, I can't do. Mm. And it's almost like that missing skill in the future for people not to be able to code AI will be like, that's really weird and bizarre. How can you not do that? So I say digital savvy, tech savvy, but on the same side, as much as we're going heavily down that technology path, what comes up that are critically important, and it's all of the other skills, creativity, um, human um, organisation behaviour skills, uh, empathy, collaboration, those sorts of skills, which interestingly are associated with the feminine archetype, mm. are the ones that will be in demand to offset the, the heavy tech. So to me, an all-rounder will try and develop all of that. So... Every time I'm doing vinyasa yoga, mm-hmm. at the end of the class, after we've been in shavasana, which is you know laying down on your back fundamentally and you know the connecting corpse, with the ground, corpse pose. I'm, 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 I'm sure, yeah, exactly the corpse pose. I'm sure you can give a great, great you know, you can really deep dive into this um, in this area. But um, we're always told to roll over to our right. Because we've built up all of this, you know, masculine mm. energy, and and because the you know yoga instructor or meditator, you know, wants us to breathe in through our left nostril, mm-hmm. which apparently the one of, of 
of female energy and um and I always think about that because you know we've touched upon you know masculine energy and coding and ethics and you know stereotypes discrimination steve you know steve wozniak and and his wife and 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 the bias that's available in our society there's also been this bias towards stem or sciences technology engineering and maths and the government's been telling you know parents you know teach your kids to code and my intuition around this is that some of those things are the first things that will be automated and, and roboticized. <laughs> and so I agree with you that, you know, this could be an, an, an era of actually tapping back into some of these feminine archetypes that are available to both men and women and any, right. anyone in between. Yeah, right. Feminine archetype doesn't mean women. Um, it, it just means uh, characteristics associated with with the feminine. So uh, there are many men I know who are fantastic at all, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting point that you make that actually we are already automating the coding. So the machines code themselves. So to a degree, humans may not need to be coding the machines because they'll code themselves and teach themselves, which gets us back into that whole where is this all going to go? <laughs> yeah, well, there's this sense that, you know, that, you know, it might be AI might be our last great innovation after the, you know, the toaster. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, it might be the last innovation we ever had to design because it will keep innovating for us. Right, right. So some great friends of mine, um, Carolyn Pegram and the team at Uncanny Valley were the that's um, the name of their company and we can tell you, I can tell the audience what Uncanny Valley means in a minute, but um, they're a great AI company that does music. Anyway, they went this year in the Eurovision Song Contest for the first time ever they had an AI song contest and this Australian company won it with a a song called Beautiful the World, which is actually really good, completely written and and produced by an an AI. Mm. Not an ABBA AI either. <laughs> might, not- I might have listened to a few ABBA songs like Waterloo. Yeah, yeah. But, but this knows that Uncanny Valley is just a useful one for, for you and the audience mm. to, to know if they haven't heard it because they'll hear it in, in AI. So the Uncanny Valley is that area where um, an AI has been built so well to represent sort of human that it's really creepy. It's in the Uncanny Valley. And so it's actually... Uh, like Sophia, the robot that was, I think, built by Hanson Robotics mm-hmm. that does is a public speaker and does a lot of things. She's, I've had to debate her in Dubai once, yes. Ah, yeah. right. So, and <laughs> creepishly, you know, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also saw some of the some of the, um, the mastery or puppet mastery that was going on behind right. the scenes and right. stuff, so I wasn't, I wasn't too intimidated, but there were some fast coders or people... <laughs> Typing okay. responses in good, behind the stage, I think. Know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good uh, there to was know. a there was a bit of human manipulation there. But sorry, <laughs> I I intervened. Yeah, well, the uncanny valley is just that creepiness that it's too close to being a human, but it's not a human. And and so designers try not to go into the uncanny valley. It's actually better to design something that's not as human like, which again keeps us coming around on this topic. I find it ludicrous that we're building AI and robots to be like humans. Why are we doing that? Mm. We need, they are something entirely different. And for whatever reason, a lot of the early thinkers thought we just had to replace humans with robots. It shouldn't be the case. So I try not to be, give the robots genders. And they're, they're often given female genders. In fact, three quarters of the world's robots have a young woman's name. 
And that's because the level of fear humans have of robots is quite high innately. And to have a young female's name means the it's, it's less threatening. Mm. Um, Oftentimes and, they're in a servant position as well. Well, yeah, right. And there's mm. a lot of the feminists come out and going, well, you know, don't give them female names and don't have them be servants. Mm. Um, so I've got a couple of different views on that. But um, I try not to. So my robot Trinity, like it's kind of just a name. It's not a mm. gender name. Uh, and try not to make them human. Um, so I think a lot of money is going into reproducing to make them humanoid, which I think there'll be a phase of that and people will just go, oh, they're robots, right? They're not humans. And they're not even robots. They're actually software. That's what they are. And my belief is we as humans will need to develop a deep, deep relationship with software. Mm. I mean, we already have it to a degree because we love our machines already. I love this watch. I love my mm. phone. I'm not ashamed to say that. It is actually a love. I get a bit itchy when it's not around. Um, but it doesn't need to be a human for me to have those feelings for it. Mm. How do you, um, you know, reconnect with yourself, with, you know, with a natural world that I know that you, you know, appreciate and love or even spirituality? given that you know it might take us a few moments to kind of you know disconnect digitally disconnect to 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 reconnect with ourselves and 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 you know create a happy space to to be a, a creative human mm. yeah so given that i'm in such a technology world um interesting to know that when i was younger all i wanted to be was a farmer that's all i wanted to do, be a farmer and have lots of kids and so we do actually have a farmer family property up in um, northern New South Wales, which is my love. So it's the mm. land, it's horses, it's dogs, it's country people. Um, so I find my grounding there. Plus my partner, Dr. Anna Rubenstein, lives in Byron Bay and Mullumbimby. And so I go up there just to be out in the bush and meditate and get back to being grounded and, and know that actually beyond all of everything we've talked about today, the environment is actually the most important thing. The climate is the most important thing. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very interested in shamanics and I you know, have a few circles of people that are um, interested in sort of shamanic journeys and um, medicine and the like. And I think mm. there's a whole coming back into consciousness now about traditional medicines and how uh, Indigenous people lived and worked with the land and and so it's it's almost like as tech powered as we're getting there's also a big movement back to more traditional um environmental nature-based life and you know that's one of the reasons that we theme this show the second renaissance because the renaissance of course means the rebirth or re revival of, you know, what they considered ancient texts and ancient wisdom to, you know, bring them back out of the dark ages and feel like we're at this sort of, you know, moment right now where there's, you know, this, yeah, total, you know, digital acceleration, but there is a, a renewed interest in the, you know, the, in psychedelics and mushrooms and um, a lot of ancient or indigenous mm. wisdom. Right, right. Well, definitely the psychedelics movement is back on foot 
all over the world. And I think that's really a call for people to go back to plant medicine and natural medicine to solve some of the unsolvable problems around post-traumatic stress disorder, the high levels of anxiety, depression and other mental health issues that clearly Western medicine is not solving. So I think there's, you know, that's a whole other podcast really Mm. about um, the value, I think, of um, some traditional medicine. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, even even in the, you know, in the wellness space, which is, you know, which is a $5 trillion uh, industry at the moment, um, some people say that it's 5% of global economic output at the moment. I think it also recognizes that it's, you know, it's not just about um, skin fluences on Instagram or, or, or just, you know, superficial beauty and health, but there is this sort of, you know, reconnecting to, to spirituality and that wellness is, is a holistic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people, explore, you know, re-exploring things like regenerative farming, you know, you right. touched upon farming before. Mm-hmm. Um, and nootropics, you know, adaptogens. There's a lot of there's a lot of interest in just, you know, creating human transformation and and moving us up the you know the hierarchy or Maslow's needs hierarchy from just those, you know, essential um, areas that we need. You know, food, belonging, safety, security. Mm-hmm. You know, roof over our head. But I'm seeing it in every industry we work with that there's this renewed sense that hey you know humans want to transform and that may be one of the ways in which we'll transform is that this reconnection to nature on the one hand you know balanced by technology actually maybe getting us out of our, some of our drudgery so we mm-hmm. can even entertain these thoughts right yeah i think that's that's pretty accurate um and and what a great world or life we can create if we do both of those sides well and and connect it all together. And one of the risks that, of course, comes with such advancement in technology is a a greater divide between the have and the have-nots, and that's really what we've got to try and figure out. And so whether always along the lines of the conversation of artificial intelligence and the removal of jobs, which, again, is a challenging one, so 90% of the jobs that AI will replace will be the jobs of women and minorities. But we also know that for every one job that AI takes away, 1.3 jobs will be created. just won't be these people necessarily doing that work. So along with this conversation is always the conversation about the universal um, income. Mm. And that's, of course, very controversial and open to all sorts of debate, but there may be some rationale Mm. Well, I think, you know, even in Australia in the last 12 months, we've had, you know, the benefit of JobKeeper, JobSeeker, in some ways a little bit of an experiment in universal basic right. income, okay. um, luckily in this, in this, you know, in, in, the, in the lucky country. Um, Andrew Yang, who's now running for mayor in New York City, is a big proponent of, of UBI and, of course, you should check out his, his work. Um, I'm curious in this, you know, one job, 1.3 jobs. Mm. How do, you know, how do we get people to sort of take a breath and really believe that science fiction story? 
when when they know you know this job existed they distrusted Malcolm Turnbull when he talked about innovation nation because it's not necessarily concrete here we can't feel it and touch it yet so it's almost going on a 2025 or 2030 sort of quest Mm -hmm. odyssey Mm -hmm. how do we get people to really believe that there's a job or there's a Maybe not a job, maybe UBI where they can actually spend time doing stuff that they really love as well. Yeah, well, I think the first thing we have to do is get our prime minister and our government to understand that we cannot build an economy back on mining, gas and manufacturing alone. I mean, it's just outrageous that that's the growth path. So last year... Prime Minister Morrison in October came out and said very strongly uh, to the press that Australia was not going to be a tech nation. We were not going to be the new Silicon Valley. We were not a country of tech heads, that we would be good at adopting technology. We should be known as good technology adopters. Anyway, this So was, aspirational, isn't it? It was, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. it was just devastating. And so... I did a post on LinkedIn and that went crazy viral. There was 400 comments and tens, hundreds of thousands of shares. And anyway, I've recently written a letter to the Prime Minister to say, um, look, this is how we, the tech community, understood your comments to be, that you said we're not a tech nation, we're going to be tech adopters, not tech creators or inventors. We're sure we must have misunderstood you or it wasn't really what you were saying because it can't really be true, so could we please have a meeting with you? And um, and see if we can talk to you and be more clear on what you actually meant. So we're still waiting to hear back from the Prime Minister on that. Mm. Did so, you send it with a pigeon or by email? <laughs> by email. <laughs> but we've got um, Ed Husick now in taking the portfolio mm. that covers innovation and technology, mm. and Ed is far more knowledgeable about this than than we see in the in the government. So hopefully with a bit of pressure from the opposition with someone smart like Ed in place might put a bit of pressure on. So one is we have to get our politicians, our government to actually understand that this is all where it's headed. And then for um, average Australians in jobs, we know that 40%, well, we know, we predict that 40% of jobs in admin service, financial services, telco, all of the utilities within the next five years will be automated. And so we'd, we'll just start to see these jobs changing and rolling off. Now, what we need is retraining programs for the people who are going to suffer the most with that. And one of the things that worries me, as I said, will be women and minority groups, but it's also youth. So youth unemployment already very high. The jobs that will be automated will be the jobs that, that young people would initially go in at, at entry level. Yeah, the mundane, the menial, yeah. yeah, where you right. train yourself up. Yep. And those jobs will be automated. So I'm encouraging um, government organisations to just do public courses on what is artificial intelligence. Um, and we'll release some this year as well. Um, what is artificial intelligence? How do you work with it? Um, what are the jobs? How do you retrain a job that will you be working with a machine? Um, and I think that's needed. And like, can you think of a one company now that's a specialist in retraining for artificial intelligence related jobs? Mm. I don't know any. Mm. Maybe we need to co-create. Great it. opportunity. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so just finally, we're kind of we're kind of into the 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 end zone here. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, tech adoption, right? And, and you know, there's you know certainly companies that both you and I speak to, and they're like, you know, we're not we're maybe not going to create the technology, but we'll you know we'll adopt it. We're running on on Salesforce and you know bookkeeping and, and accounting's on zero or whatever it happens to be, and they've got AI, you know, built into them or HubSpot, etc. What are some of the, you know, some of the, the technologies or the, some of the software that makes your life simpler or that you would recommend, you know, an organization that is sort of low-hanging fruit in mm. a sense to, to drive, you know, automation and, and, and uh, productivity so that their humans mm. can actually be liberated to do yeah. more creative, innovative, entrepreneurial, empathetic. Yeah work in this second renaissance beautiful so there is a very cool company that i'm doing a little bit of uh, advisory work for called ada.ai a-i-d-e-r.ai and so what they provide is an ai-based analytics program for small businesses and they provide that to accountants and advisors and to the small business themselves and essentially what this does this ai runs over all the financials of a small business and on a daily basis just pops up um, advice to the business owner about what they need to do, which might be to sell more, um, spend less, spend more, um, do some action. And it's exceptional. So what a great idea. And then it plugs straight into the advisors and then the advisors or the accountant can be monitoring and then there's a relationship between the small business and the advisor that's AI-based. So there's beautiful technology like that uh, coming out. We're, I'm aware of uh, another one called Props, which is um, just kind of in development now, which will be around mortgage, like a, a simple AI-based mortgage application um, from start to finish. Um, beautiful, easy, um, seamless. Mm. So we'll start seeing around financial services a lot we should start seeing more around healthcare a lot, um, around di diagnostics. What we will eventually see, which I will love and will make my life easier having five kids, is your home becomes the new healthcare clinic. So the great thing about COVID is we got almost five years technology advancement in within the 12 months, and we should see further work done on triaging or, or virtual triaging or virtual doctor's appointments mm -hmm. so you don't actually have to physically go to the doctor, then medicines and things sent to your house, diagnostics equipment in your house, so you should not really need to leave your house in the future. So um, that is for the uh, health, healthcare clinic is, is your home. Mm -hmm. um, what we'll also see is sleep, so sleep AI and sleep apps. So we are seeing now research coming out that shows that in addition to your diet and exercise, actually sleep is more important. And, you know, I'm not a great sleeper. We entrepreneurs tend not to, right? We're busy or we've got brainwaves in the middle of the night or we're on plane somewhere. Um, tech comes for your sleep is what we call it. Um, we start seeing more tech apps to help us actually sleep and crack that eight eight hours out mm. um so there are a couple of things that i'm very excited about but but mostly it, for me because i read a lot it i am really looking forward to something and we we have 
content, things that serve content up, but they don't get it quite right. Mm. And so what we're saying, the um, personalization engines at the moment, which are the AI-based engines that serve us up content, get it about 40% right and they capture the shadow of the person. So they've watched me all over the internet, but they haven't watched me Mm. not on the internet reading whatever book I might be reading at home. So they don't quite know me yet. What we expect in the next three years, and, and this is, again, Yuval Noah Harari has this mm. beautiful expression where he says, um, we better get to know ourselves because within the next few years, these machines will know us better than we know ourselves. So for the first time, we'll be in competition with organisations and machines, knowing us and knowing our attentions ahead of what we know. And that is exciting and worrying at the same time. And I think that's a, in some ways a, a you know, beautiful place to kind of bring this together in, a, in an open or maybe closed loop um, that organizations, machines are becoming conscious even of our own consciousness, mm. which we might not even yet be conscious of. <laughs> I love that. It's starting to sound a little bit loopy. Thank you for going on a wonderful future quest, future odyssey with me to discuss everything from psychedelics to Yuval Harari to Flamingo AI to ethics and uh, discrimination and you know the big questions we need to ponder for the future. Thanks for joining me on the second episode, Katrina. Such, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.